Jeremiah 19, to suffer for his sake. Throughout the prophecies of Jeremiah, we have read of Jeremiah's complaints regarding the disposition of the people of Judah against him. This has been, for Jeremiah, discouraging, as we've read about. A discouragement which, as we've mentioned several times over the past month, was going to find, if I can say it this way, some measure of climax in next week's study in Jeremiah 20. We're not quite getting there. I have Jeremiah 19, 1 through chapter 20, verse 6 here. I actually think I'm only going through verse 5, so my apologies for that. But um, either way, we're going to find this week kind of the lead up to this crisis in Jeremiah's heart next week. And we're going to study that particularly and focus in on that crisis next week. This week we're going to look at the thing that precipitates the crisis, the thing that brings the crisis about and learn some lessons from it. To this point, as far as Jeremiah's ministry is concerned and the written record is concerned, all we have learned about as it relates to persecution, if we can call it that, are words only of anger, anger against Jeremiah and a determination to ignore the word of the Lord, right? We've seen them say that we're going to smite him with the words of our mouth. We are going to ignore him. We're going to ignore his words. And so they have, they have berated Jeremiah. And this has brought to Jeremiah any amount of discouragement, any amount of struggle, any amount of, of personal angst as he loves his people, but he's so angry at what they've done to him and what they've done to the Lord. And, and there's this tension throughout. And we're going to see that, that tension in, in, in a sense really build up this week. And it's not fully going to be released until we see Jeremiah's response next week. Today, however, for the first time in the written record, we're going to see someone go beyond just words as it relates to the persecution of Jeremiah. And with this change will come a heightened perspective, an opportunity to think about our lives from a different point of view, perhaps deeper than just what we've talked about before, which we will rehash, the idea that we should expect the world to reject the message of Jesus Christ through us. We've talked about that. We will talk about it in part, but we're going to go farther than that this evening in order that we might take this new element which is the physical suffering of Jeremiah for the sake of the gospel, the physical suffering of Jeremiah as it relates to the message of the word of God, and seek to translate that over to some understanding in our lives. So the Bible says this in verses 1 and 2 of Jeremiah 19. Thus saith the Lord, Go and get a potter's earthen bottle, and take of the ancients of the people and of the ancients of the priests, and go forth into the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the east gate, and proclaim there the words that I shall tell thee. So recall last week, remember in Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah went down to the potter's house, right? He went down to the potter's house and he saw the potter shaping that vessel and then he saw that vessel collapse. The vessel which was, mar- was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make it. So he had this idea that Jeremiah saw the pot collapse, he saw the potter remake it, and then it was that inspiration that brought about the message of Jeremiah to the people that God says, you're a marred pot, but I can remake you, right? Well, this week, God, Jeremiah is still at the potter. He's still at the potter's house. And this week, God says to Jeremiah, take a pot. And I want you to get an earthen bottle, a, a clay bottle, a clay pot. And then I want you to call the ancients of the priests and the people. 
the elders, the older men, men of influence, probably mostly from the priesthood as we see it here. And I want you to go into the Valley of Hinnom, he says, which is described as being by the entry of the east gate. This is not the eastern gate. When we think of the eastern gate, the gate that, that faced directly east, leading into the Valley of Kidron. We talked about that this morning, right? The Valley of Jehoshaphat. That's not this gate. This gate is actually technically the sun gate, if you look in the Hebrew, which would be the, on the east side, but likely kind of southeast. The Valley of Hinnom, as best we know, was south of the city and extended from east to west. And so this would be kind of the eastern portion of the Valley of Hinnom there called the sun gate. And that is the gate that Jeremiah led them through. And he led them into the valley of the son of Hinnom. And there he was to proclaim a message which should be quite familiar to us by this point, verses 3 through 6. And say, Hear ye the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place, the which whosoever heareth, his ears shall tingle. Because they have forsaken me and have in estranged this place and have burned incense in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers have known nor the kings of Judah and have filled this place with the blood of innocence they have built also the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings unto Baal which I commanded not nor spake it neither came it into my mind therefore behold the days come saith the Lord that this place shall no more be called Tophet nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. So Jeremiah is speaking to the kings and the inhabitants of Judah, but he's speaking into the ears of these elders, right? Into the ancients of the people. And he declares that God is going to bring evil, the text says, on this place. On this place. Now it's important to understand a bit of what God means when he says he will bring evil, and it's also important to understand what this place is. So when God says he's going to bring evil, when God says he's going to do evil, when God says he is thinking evil upon someone, this is not the idea that God is evil in the sense that we think of evil. Rather, this simply means something that is negative, something that is not for your good, something that is not positive, that bad things are going to happen, that evil is going to happen to this evil people. Not wicked. God is not wicked. God is not sinful. It's not that kind of an evil. The evil here is simply a bad, bad circumstances. Um, um, that which will be evil to you. Can I say it that way? I'm going to bring that which will be evil to you, that which will be bad to you upon a people that are evil. And in that context, the idea is they are wicked. So God is not evil in the sense of wicked. We know that from the word of God, but we have this interplay with the words that can, that can sometimes um, confuse some people. But that's certainly not what the text is saying, nor what, 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 what God means here. God says that the evil that he will do to them, these negative, these bad circumstances, the judgment that he will give to them, will be so bad that their ears will tingle. Again, we, we've talked about this before. Uh, in our language, we often talk about our spine tingling, right? Something, have you ever had a circumstance where you've heard something and it's been so impacting on you that there's been a physiological response? Whether that's the spine tingle. I remember 
Um, well, it still happens from time to time. There are certain foods that when you think about it, your glands tingle, especially like spicy foods or, or cinnamony type things where you just feel your glands tingle when, when, you, when you think about it. Or, or when, when you put it to your mouth and you, and you eat it, you, you, it's like your glands have a physiological reaction to it. That's sort of an idea, except in this case, uh, in the Hebrew, the idea was the ears are going to tingle. When they hear about it, it's going to cause that organ that, that, that they hear about it and it's so intense, it's so bad, it's so traumatic that the ears, the organ or, or the element of the body that is here, that, that is, is, is processing what's just been said is going to have a physiological response. That's how bad it's going to be. And that's all it's saying is it's going to be really, really bad. Now, when God speaks of this place, he's now not speaking of Jerusalem. Remember, he has commanded Jeremiah to leave Jerusalem and to go into the valley of the son of Hinnom. And we know this not just from what we've already read, but from the context that is to come. So Jeremiah gives this message. He's told specifically to come to this valley. And the reason why this place, that valley, the valley of the son of Hinnom, is a, is a place of cursing is because it was in the valley of the son of Hinnom, which was renamed in Josiah's day, the valley of Tophet, and renamed again by Jeremiah here, the valley of slaughter, where the nation in the days of Manasseh, and we studied that already, killed their children unto idols. And in the days of Ahaz, worshipped idols and gave burnt offerings to idols. Due to this information egregious past, King Josiah had defiled the valley, turning it into a place of evil in the land, a place to bury the dead. And by Jesus' day, it was a place of garbage. It was a garbage heap. It was a garbage dump that they called Gehenna. In this valley, the garbage of the city would be burned only to have more garbage thrown on top of it. The valley, Israel wanted to completely remove that valley from their consciousness because of the evils that had been done there. And a part of that is what we've seen already with Manasseh and Ahaz. And a part of it is going to be what God is explicitly talking about, that there's going to be another great slaughter there. That, that it's going to be a sign not just of what Manasseh did, not just of what Ahaz did. It already lives in infamy through King Josiah, who was the king when Jeremiah began his ministry. But on top of that, there's going to be a day where Babylon's going to come in and there's going to be dead bodies all over that place and they're not going to be able to be buried. So it's going to become a place of tremendous infamy. It goes from being the, the valley of the son of Hinnom to the valley of Tophet in Josiah's day to finally the valley of slaughter. Not, not, not a pleasant idea. In Jesus' day, as I mentioned, it was a garbage dump. They would just continue to throw garbage on top of it. So the garbage that's lit is burning. Then you throw more on top of it. I don't know if you've ever done this either with garbage in, a, in, in like a 55-gallon drum or perhaps if you burn leaves, right? You've got like smoldering leaves and then you throw more leaves on it and it, it kicks up and then it smolders and you can throw more leaves on it. And you can do that all day. And as soon as the, and the leaves are going to smolder and it's going to be hot and even the next day you could go out there and there's still some, some smoldering and you can throw more leaves on it and it'll just kick right up again. So this being a garbage heap, it was constantly on fire. They were constantly adding more to it. It was a place of perpetual, stinking, worm-infested, smoldering filth. It was a place where the fire was never quenched. It was a place where the worm never died, which is why Jesus used the Valley of Gehenna, Gehenna as a picture of the lake of fire. 
It was a place of cursing. Marginally at the time of Jeremiah because of Josiah's ministry. But it was going to become much worse because it was going to become the valley of slaughter. It's worth noting just finally that this is not the first time Jeremiah has spoken of the valley in these terms. He called it the valley of slaughter in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 32 as well. I'm not going to turn there, but in Jeremiah 7, 32, Jeremiah also referred to, Gehenna, to the valley of the son of Hinnom, Gehenna, as the valley of slaughter. We continue in verses 7 and 8. The Bible says this, And I will make void the counsel of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hands of them that seek their lives. And their carcasses will I give to be meat for the fowls of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. And I will make this city desolate. And in hissing, everyone that passeth thereby shall be astonished and hiss because of all the plagues thereof. So the legacy of the Valley of Hinnom is a visual representation of the wrath of God against his people. And it's going to become that even more. It's going to become a place where they will fall by the hands of their enemies it's going to become a place where the fowls of heaven and the beasts of the earth uh, eat the flesh of the people of Israel. There's no time to bury them. There's no one left to bury them. It's going to be the visual representation of everything of, of God's displeasure in the people. That is going to be the legacy of this valley. The city will be desolate. The people will be desolate. But the most debasing and, and most evil reputation that this valley is going to remind them of, we actually read about in verse 9. God says, And I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters, and they shall eat every one the flesh of his friend in the siege and straightness, wherewith their enemies and they that seek their lives shall straighten them. Notice that word straighten them is not like straightening like you would straighten a, a, a line or straighten your hair, but it's S-T-R-A-I-T, constrain, like the strait of Gibraltar. Or like the bearing straight, right? It's the idea of constraining them. They will be constrained into the city and because they will be besieged and they'll have no way out and they'll be constrained in the city, they will have to resort, as has often happened, in desperation. It has not been uncommon in times of desperation, in sieges of sort, that people who are starving would resort, resort to cannibalism in order to stay alive. When there's a siege and there's no food, people become desperate and they do terrible things. Now this is egregious, and we think of it as such. Jeremiah told them that this valley is going to be the representation of that to them, of all of these, and when they see that, and when they feel that, and when, they, when all of that comes to pass, it is for them to know that God was displeased with them. Little wonder then that it became a garbage heap by Jesus' day. Jeremiah told them that things would get that desperate, Verses 10 and 11. Then shalt thou break the bottle in the sight of all the, uh, of the men that go with thee, and shall say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Even so will I break this people and this city, as one breaketh a potter's vessel, that cannot be made whole again. And they shall bury them in Tophet, till there be no place to bury. So God tells Jeremiah, Jeremiah is standing there in the valley of Tophet, right? In the valley of the son of Hinnom, in what he now has entitled the Valley of Slaughter. And he has this pot. Remember, he, he took the pot from the, from, from the potter's house and he's carrying this vessel with him as he goes out to the Valley of Hinnom. And he's proclaiming this message. And then he takes that vessel and he smashes it on the ground. And he says, that's what God is going to do to you. 
If you will not listen, if you will not repent, then God is going to break you and he's going to break you in a different way. Remember the message from last week? The vessel which was made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. You get a crack in your vessel, the potter can deal with that. Before, certainly before the, the, the pot is, is fired and, and is, it goes into the kiln, you can always remake it new, right? You can just reform the clay. You can deal with cracks. You can deal with, 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 with marred clay. But when a vessel is shattered, the potter looks at it and says, there's nothing I can do for you. I can't fix that. And what an interesting contrast between these two messages. Last week, Jeremiah says, God wants you to know that you are marred, but he wants to fix you. And do you remember their response? Let's scorn Jeremiah. Let's smite him with our mouths. Let's, and we will ignore him. God says, if you stay on that path, you're going to be smashed. You're going to be shattered. Not, not, not something that's repairable. You obviously don't think you're broken enough, Israel. So I will break you. And reality, in, in a sense, reality has borne this out in, in, in so many ways. The rest of history to this point has been God kind of breaking the nation more and more. So this chapter, it's a fairly short chapter, ends in verses uh, 12 through 15. We'll just read verses 12 and 13. The Bible says this, Thus will I do unto this place, saith the Lord, and to the inhabitants thereof, even make this city as Tophet. And the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled as the place of Tophet. Because all the houses upon whose roofs they have burned incense unto all the hosts of heaven and have poured out drink offerings unto other gods. So God says, in the same way that now Josiah has called this place Tophet, right? And he's using the name Josiah gave it, which shows that it is already, he's, he's calling it the place of infamy. He's calling it the place where they acknowledge that Manasseh did evil, that Ahaz did evil, that it was the place of idolatry, that it was the place of evil, that it was the place of sin. And as he acknowledges that, he says, I will make the city in the same desolation, the same poor reputation, the same uh, unholiness as now you see the valley. Because you followed false gods in the city, just as Ahaz did in the valley. The whole city will become a place of defilement, much like the valley had become and would continue to be. Then we read, finally, verses 14 and 15. Then came Jeremiah from Tophet, whither the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and he stood in the court of the Lord's house, and said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring upon this city and upon all her towns all the evil that I have pronounced against it, because they have hardened their necks, that they might not hear my words. So Jeremiah now leaves. Right? He goes out there, he gives the message, he smashes the pot, and he leaves. And he goes back into the city, he leaves the valley, and he goes into the court of the temple. He, he's going from the south to the north, he's going, and he goes into the court of the temple, and now he proclaims a new message to the people in the court of the temple. And he says, God will bring upon this city and her towns, that would be all of the suburbs, as it were, these evils because no one will listen because no one will obey and while Jeremiah is proclaiming these words one of the people that was listening was a man named Pasher we're introduced to him for the first time in chapter 20 won't be the last time we see him 
In chapter 20, verse 1, the Bible says this, Now Pasher, the son of Immer the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Pasher is said to be the son of Immer, the priest in the temple where Jeremiah said these things. Now there's a little bit of a question and a debate as to whether or not it's Pasher or Immer that is the chief governor in the house of the Lord, but it would seem to be Pasher that is that. And Pasher, upon hearing these words, naturally feels he has to respond. Jeremiah has gone into the court of the temple and he has proclaimed that God will desolate this place. So we read in verse 2. Then Pasher smote Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. So Pasher approaches Jeremiah and strikes him in some way, shape, or form. And then he has him more or less arrested and put into what the King James Bible calls the stocks. And these stocks were by the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. Now, stocks have taken many different forms and variations throughout the centuries, but they've always been a form at the very least of public shame and punishment. And depending upon the time and history, they have also oftentimes been a source of torture. Now, there are various types, right? There's five whole stocks where a person's feet, hands, and head are put through these rings. If that's the case, then oftentimes they're bent or contorted in a very uncomfortable way, and there's some element of torture there that for any number of hours on end, or perhaps even days on end, your body is in one rigid position, you can't move, you can't shift, and so there is this, this torture element to it. If it's just your arms and your head, or just your feet, then there is not so much perhaps of a torture element to it, but there's still definitely a punishment aspect, and all all of them were intended to be a, a element of shame. So they'd be put in prominent places, sometimes right in the middle of the court of the city, in this case, right at the gate of Benjamin, the high gate of Benjamin. They put him right at the gate in the stocks by the house of the Lord so that everyone that heard him give this message could see what happened. And he is there. Oftentimes people would come by, they would laugh, they would mock these people, they would spit on them, they'd throw things at them. You couldn't do anything, you were stuck, right? You were stuck there so people could do whatever they wanted to you and it would be shameful and it would be mockery and it would be all of these things as they jeer and such. So Pasher does this. These stocks were situated in the gate of Benjamin right by the temple to display in public fashion the shame of, of Jeremiah for what he has said and mocking him in the name of the Lord. But remember, Jeremiah is a man that is divinely protected, right? And God promised in chapter 1 that he would protect him. And God reiterated that promise when Jeremiah asked for a reiteration of it. And we've seen the reiteration of that promise that God says, if you do right, if you stay with me, I will protect you. You'll be a brazen, you'll be a wall of, of, of iron. You'll be a brazen tower. Maybe it's the other way around. Tower of iron, brazen wall. Either way, he's, he's going to be protected by the Lord. To this end, God had a message for Pasher on this day. And it came to pass on the morrow, verse 3, that Pasher brought forth Jeremiah out of the stocks. Then said Jeremiah unto him, The Lord hath not called thy name Pasher, but Magor Misabib. So Jeremiah comes out the next day, and Jeremiah says, I have a message, Pasher, for you from the Lord. God does not any longer call your name Pasher, which means freedom. 
Instead, he says, God is calling you Megor Misavib, which means terror on every side. And Jeremiah explains this change. I give you verses 4 and 5 here. I actually do want to read verse 6 as well. So the Bible says in verses 4 and 5, For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will make thee a terror to thyself and to all thy friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and thine eye shall behold it. And I will give all Judah into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive into Babylon and shall slay them with the sword. Moreover, I will deliver all the strength of this city and all the labors thereof and all the precious things thereof and all the treasures of the kings of Judah will I give into the hands of their enemies, which shall spoil them and take them and carry them to Babylon. Continuing in verse 6, And thou, Pasher, and all that dwell in thine house shall go into captivity, and thou shalt come to Babylon, and, uh, and there thou shalt die and shalt be buried there, thou and all thy friends, to whom thou hast prophesied lies. So this man has persecuted the prophet of God because he did not like God's message, and this did not please God one bit. God has said, Jeremiah, I will protect you, I will defend you, and now God is making good on that. So God says that he will make Pasher a terror to himself and to all of his friends. Because of Pasher's wrongdoing, he and his friends all of those that would, would place themselves on his side are going to experience what God has promised here. The captivity of Babylon, the death of the sword, all the things that we've studied already, that they would witness it and they would know that God was against them particularly. That they would be taken into Babylon and that they would die there and that they would be buried there. The strength of the city would be delivered and they would be delivered with it. Now it's there I'm going to leave exposition for this week. Next week, we're going to see Jeremiah's response to this, and I want to give an entire message to that. But I wanted to continue from chapter 19 into chapter 20 because we see a continuation of this narrative, the response to Jeremiah's message. He goes to the valley, he gives his message, he goes to the temple, he gives his message, and Pasha responds by smiting him, putting him in the stocks, and then God responds in this way. And to that end, I want to give you three points of application. As I mentioned, the first one's going to be very familiar. Point number one of our application, suffering for your faith is a distinct possibility. Now, this point is, especially at this point in Jeremiah, almost implicit. The prophets, prophets suffered for believing and for telling the truth. Jesus suffered for telling the truth. All the way back to the second generation, Abel was killed for believing and telling the truth. We spoke of it not too long ago, but let's review that. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was that wicked one and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him, because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. So Cain slew Abel, not because Abel had done anything wrong, but rather because Abel had done everything right. Because Cain had done wrong, and in his pride, Cain sought to calm his guilty conscience not through repentance and submission and forgiveness and those things, but rather through silencing the one that made his rebellion so obvious. If I'm standing next to someone that is better than me at basketball, I can either become better at basketball or I can break the legs of the guy that's good at basketball and then I'm better at basketball than him, right? That's the idea here. Cain says, I have a couple of choices. I can either repent, get right with God, or I can kill the one that's making me feel like 
I'm inferior. And he chose to kill the one that made him feel guilty. Abel, who did what was right. And this has always been the way that the world has worked. At any number of times in history, when evil operates freely and when evil operates boldly, those doing right stick out like a sore thumb. And these, as they preach and obey the truths of God's word, cause the hearts and minds of the sinner to feel guilty. And so the sinner does the only thing that they can actually think to do, aside from, you know, repenting, which is to silence the ones that make them feel guilty. But then that doesn't become enough to just silence them. Because even in relative silence, righteousness still exists in a state of obedience, which naturally judges disobedience, right? I don't have to say a word, but if I do right things, then people that don't do right are going to get grumpy at me. And that's where the next step comes to eliminate the righteous, to take them outside of my field of vision so that I don't have to feel bad anymore by simply being around them. Now, this should not surprise us. Jesus spoke of these things directly to his disciples. And though the context is not our own, the concept is just as applicable. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 28. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in the synagogues, and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another, for verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be, made known, that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness that speak ye in light and what ye hear in the ear that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jesus is speaking to his immediate disciples about various elements that they will go through. By extension, we would recognize that this, will be very, that this message of Jesus will be very important to the, the believers in, in the days of the end, uh, and, and particularly the Jewish believers in the days of the end. By extension, Jesus speaking to the Jewish believers that will go out and spread the gospel throughout the world. And we see all of these uh, more pointed cultural concepts that Jesus is promising there about being brought before councils and these sorts of things. Things that you and I may or may not experience in our own culture as we would perhaps translate these things over. The concept is, however, entirely applicable to us, even if the particulars are not. Jesus warns that his followers would be hated of all men for his name's sake. Now, at this time, by God's grace, we're not hated of all men. 
Thank God for that. There are particular places where that can be significantly more the case around the world. But in our country, this is not yet the case. There's still many an unbeliever who recognizes and is more than willing to allow Christianity to have its, its, its part in this culture. They like the fruits of Christianity and such. And yet, as the world spirals deeper into darkness, we'll see that that be, will become less and less tolerant, barring a revival. Please, God, bring it. We have seen this in any number of times in history and in any number of locales in history where the message of Christianity becomes absolutely unconscionable and where people are, are destroyed simply for speaking it. Jesus warns that his followers would stand before authorities and be judged for the crime of following Christ. This happens throughout the world today. This is happening even in modern developed countries today where people are being uh, who, who are preaching the word of God are being labeled as those who would be speaking hate speech and are being brought before judges to be tried for their crimes of preaching the word of God as it relates particularly to certain uh, um, sinful lifestyle choices such as homosexuality and transgenderism and such. Jesus warns that siblings and parents will betray their Christian family members into the hands of persecutors even unto death, that they will hand their family members over unto death because of their Christian faith. And in alignment with our first point, Jesus tells us not to be surprised when this will happen. Now he gives the promises that the Spirit of God will tell uh, the, the believer what to say and the time that they need to say it and, and all of these elements of the commission. But that leads us into a, our second point here, First, suffering is a, uh, for our faith is a, a distinct possibility, and we've talked about this in various contexts within Jeremiah. But, but as we go a bit farther here, Jeremiah has now spent time in the stocks. He's been smitten. He's been struck in the name of the Lord for, for preaching the word of the Lord. And within this context that we just read in Matthew, we see this second point. And we need to have this mindset. Suffering for your faith is a distinct privilege. Now take note. It's not something we should be going for. There are certain particular Christian ministries today that, that don't just wear suffering as a badge of honor, but they actually try to bring about suffering so that they can wear it as a badge of honor. They become the most obnoxious, unkind, ungracious people they can become. And then when the world treats them with contempt, they say, see, we're suffering for Christ. Not what Jesus is saying here. Not what Jesus has mentioned here. It's not that we become obnoxious, hostile, uh, extremely antagonistic to the world, and then cry that where, where our persecution is a badge of honor when the world retaliates against us. That's, that's not it. But the idea here is that when we do well, and we'll see this, and suffer for it. We take it patiently. This is acceptable to God. And that thus becomes a privilege. It becomes a badge of honor. Jesus said in Matthew 10, the disciple is not above his master nor the servant above his Lord. Uh, his Lord. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, which is what the, Sa the Pharisees and the Sadducees did, right? He casts out devils by the prince of devils, they said. If that's what they said of Jesus, how much more shall they call his servants, his household devils? How much more will they look at the Christian lifestyle, the Christian way of thinking and say, this is 
evil. This is wrong. And we're starting to see that in a more overt way even today in our culture. Jesus gives the promise, however, which we'll come back to in our final point, that he will be with them and that, that they will be blessed for it. But within this text, we find a privilege that when we suffer, we have the privilege of being like our master. If we are called to follow the Lord, if we are called to tread the path that Jesus trod, and when we, not trying to be antagonistic or unkind or whatever the case may be, when we, for doing right, suffer evil, do you know what? We find ourselves in some pretty good company, don't we? When we, for doing right, suffer evil, suffer slander, suffer these things, it's not easy to stand up in your school or at your workplace and say, not in an antagonistic way, not in a rebellious way, but simply say, this is something I cannot do because of the word of God, or I will not say because of the word of God, or whatever the case may be. And then you receive the slander, the mocking, or, or, or perhaps the censure in some way, shape, or form. That's not easy. But when you do that, this is what you can know. You're walking the path that others have trod. Others that we might look to as examples. Paul, Peter, all the apostles really. The Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Elijah, Elisha, Micah, Micaiah. And at the top of that list, of course, is the one who followed that path unto death. Many of the prophets did as well, but Jesus himself. Paul spoke of this point regularly, especially in Philippians. And he said this, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29. Only let your conversation, that's your manner of lifestyle, not just what you say, right? Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition. The fact that you're not terrified of them, you have a suicide, you know, you, 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 you have a, a, a mindset to, for suicide. You're masochistic. You, you love to suffer, right? That's the idea. These people see suffering as a badge of honor. Not really. It's not that suffering is the badge of honor. It's that by suffering, we're more like Christ, and that is the badge of honor. So to them, to your adversaries, when, when you suffer for righteousness' sake and you take it and you bear it and you forgive them and you, you, you thank the Lord and you praise the Lord anyway, they say that that's a sign of perdition. That's a sign that you, you've got something wrong. That's a sign of just how extreme you are. But to you of salvation, to you, it's not a sign of your perdition. It's a sign of your salvation. It's not a sign of your destruction. It's not a sign of your extremism. It's a sign that you are walking the path that Jesus has trod and that of God, salvation of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. It's given to you. This is a part of what it means. This is a part of the plan. This is a part of the process. This is a part of, of, of what very well might happen 
If I follow Christ, if I walk the path that Jesus trod, what happens if it does lead to the same results that Jesus got? Would that surprise us? Would that not in some way, shape or form be a sign that things are going well? In a, in a manner of speaking, if I, if I have instructions to do something and I'm building something, woodworking or whatever it might be, and I'm following instructions, a YouTube video or whatever, and at some point the person says, this ought to look like that. And if it doesn't, you did something wrong. And what I did looks like what they did. I say, hey, this is going okay here, right? What I did reflects what they did, and they know what they're doing, and I don't. So this is good. In the same manner, if I see the results Jesus saw, again, I'm not producing the results. I can get the results that Jesus got in any number of ways, right? I can go be egregious and rude and offensive and get Jesus' results. But I've conjured them. But if I do it Jesus' way, if I am gracious and forgiving and kind and, I, and I'm telling the message of Jesus Christ in the manner that, 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 that it is to be delivered and I'm getting those results, well, that's probably because I'm walking in the footsteps of my Savior. So Paul would go on to say in Philippians chapter 3, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him not having mine own righteousness which is of the law but that which is through the faith of Christ the righteousness which is of God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul states with all confidence that he is willing to lose, willing to suffer, willing to lack, if only he might in doing so share just a little bit more of his Savior by sharing in just a bit of the degree to which Jesus lost and suffered and gave himself for me. This sentiment continues throughout the Gospels. We'll see it come up again. One of the things that I want to make mention at this point, and we'll see it particularly in, in the Peter passages that we'll go to, is that just because the Bible says this may happen doesn't mean it says it will. The Bible says this may happen. It does not say it will happen. So you can't say, because I'm not suffering for Jesus' sake, I'm not on the path he trod. Just because suffering for Jesus' sake might confirm that I am on the path and might thus be to me in part a badge of honor doesn't mean that I need to say, uh-oh, I'm not suffering, there's something wrong. Particularly in a culture such as this. I might be able to go for any uh, a decent amount of time in a culture that has been generally Christianized without having too much suffering, if any, for my faith. That's okay. I don't need to go look for it. I just need to recognize that if I'm doing the will of the Lord and it comes, that should not surprise me. And some Christians feel like, again, they need to conjure up suffering because if they're not suffering, they must be doing something wrong. That's not what the Bible says. And we'll see that as we get to, to, to Peter. So the sentiment continues. 
We'll see it as we come to our next point. This final point here. First, suffering for your faith is a distinct possibility. Second, suffering for your faith is a distinct privilege. But third, suffering for your faith carries a distinct promise. As believers, we are called and expected to suffer patiently when called upon to do it, but not without any hope. The Bible speaks of three realities that are forged in the life of the person who suffers for his faith with patience and endurance. The first we've considered already. The first reality that is forged in the life of one who is suffering for the sake of Christ with patience and endurance, and it is that there is a joy in knowing that they are on the path that Jesus trod. There is a joy that Paul exudes in Philippians chapter 3 of saying that I will, if it means being closer to my Lord, suffer for his sake. But there's two other elements to this as well. First, the promise that those who wrong us without cause in this life will have vengeance fall upon them one day. And second, the promise that by suffering wrongfully for the sake of Christ, God is well pleased and I will be rewarded one day. Let's consider each in turn. First, the promise that God will avenge us. We talked about it a little bit in Hebrews 10 this morning. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. The Bible says, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. To whatever extent you forego your own opportunities to vengeance, to that same extent you can rest in entire and total confidence that God is watching and that God will avenge you. You can have the utmost confidence that the God who sees and who knows and whose heart is always with the innocent and whose heart is upon those that love him will be your advocate on the day of judgment. And the righteous judge will judge injustice to mete out vengeance upon the heads of those who have wronged his children unjustly. You can know that. You can trust that. That ought to help you. That ought to help steal you or strengthen you in the day of adversity. But it isn't just about delayed vengeance. It's also about blessing. And for this exhortation, we go to 1 Peter 2. Verses 11 through 23. It's a bit of a longer passage. Peter writes this, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Having your conversation, once again, that's your lifestyle, not just what you say, but everything about how you live. Honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they may speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So here we're, we, we see those that would call us evildoers because of our good works. So we have our conversation, our lifestyle, honest, proper, godly among the Gentiles, among those who are not believers. And for that, they'll speak evil against us as evildoers, calling us evildoers for our choices. But as they behold our good works on the day of visitation, God will be glorified. God will be able to point to you and say, you saw God in them. You saw the truth in them. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to king as supreme 
or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. We studied this as it related to um, uh, uh, submission to government and the elements of the, the function of government a couple of weeks ago on Tuesday night. I guess it was last Tuesday night. But the idea here as it relates to suffering is this. Continue to do right. And don't give anyone any cause to actually fling egg in your face. If you do wrong, if you disobey the government, when the government is not asking you to disobey the word of God, right? That's, our, that's always our standard. And then you disobey the government because you say, well, the government has no right to this. And then you end up in jail and you say, I'm suffering because I'm following the word of God, which doesn't give the government right to this. All you're doing is dragging the name of Christ through the mud. That's all you're doing. But if when you do well and suffer for it, if the, the secular world has nothing to hang on to other than what you have done right, other than the fact that you have stood up for what is right, you have done your best to submit to government as unto the Lord. You have done your best to honor the authorities in your life as unto the Lord. So they can't throw that in your face. They can't say that you're sitting in prison because you haven't honored your authorities because you have. Well, now what? Now why? And truth begins to bubble to the surface and God is glorified in that. For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. The ignorance of foolish men that would say that we are rebels because we're Christians. That we don't regard any God but, but uh, any king but, but God is our king and that we don't regard physical earthly authorities. Well, that's not what the Bible tells us to do. So if we're doing that, it's not because the Bible's telling us to do that except to the extent that the Bible, that, that, that the Word of God is not consistent with what the government is asking us to do or whatever authority it might be, right? As free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness. Don't say that because we're free in Christ, because we follow Christ, because Christ is our authority, that means I have no earthly authority and your your freedom in Christ becomes a cloak of malice against your authorities. You're, you're hiding behind the Bible to rebel. Don't do that. You're hiding behind the Bible in order to antagonize people. Don't do that. You're hiding behind the Bible in order to do things that are just distasteful. Don't do that. Don't do that. But as servants of God, rather, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience towards God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Not if a man, because he wants to antagonize the authorities, because he doesn't want to regard them, but if when you are doing right in your conscience before God, as according to the word of God, suffer wrongfully, this is thankworthy. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. If you did wrong and now you're suffering for it, there's no glory in that. You got what you deserved. But if you did no wrong, if you followed the word of God, and if you, uh, you respected and honored your authorities to the extent that you could without disobeying the word of God, and you reflected no malice, no cloak of maliciousness in the word of God, no uh, undue antagonism or, 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 or aggravation 
to the unbeliever because of their differences and their, un, their, their lack of understanding of, of what you're doing here. And if you, in graciousness and, and in submission and all of those things, still end up being uh, suffering for doing well and you take it patiently, you take that suffering patiently as Jesus did, this is acceptable with God. Think about those words for a moment. I love that. We talk about in Hebrews 11 where the Bible says God was not ashamed to be called their God and I just love that. The idea that God could look upon a worm like me and say I'm pleased with something. I love that. I love that when I do well and suffer for it and I take it patiently, God's pleased with me. That's that's special. That is worth being pleased about. And that's that badge of honor idea. Not, oh good, I get to suffer. Not, oh good, I've made the world angry at me. Those, th- th- those are not the badge of honor. In, in some ministries, that's the badge of honor. Oh good, I made the world angry at me. That's not the badge of honor. Oh good, I'm suffering. That's not the badge of honor. What is the badge of honor? What I've done is acceptable to God. That's the badge of honor. For hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. And what did he do as he was suffering? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Not, you're going to get it one day. Not, how dare you, suffering wrongfully. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who did no sin, verse 22, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. God, they are persecuting your servant. You'll deal with them in in your time and in your way. but, But you know what else? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In so many ways, Peter presents here the sum total of all these points. It may very well be that you suffer, but if when you do well and suffer for it, not when you do well and suffer for it, it may be that suffering may never come to you for your faith. And God, God help that that will be the case. That the, the, the limits of our suffering will be the door that slammed in your face as you're door knocking. That the limits of your suffering will be a no thank you when you hand that tract out at Walmart. That the limits of your suffering will be someone that snickers behind your back because you're the, the, the hyper pious one. The one that, that the limits of your suffering will be when they call you legalistic. God, God, God let it be so that that will be the limits of the suffering for, my, for me and for my children and for my children's children in this land. But if that is not the case, it may be that you will need to suffer one day for righteousness sake. And if we do, we know that Jesus suffered first and it is a privilege to walk the path that our Savior walked in the way that he walked it. And when we do so, when we suffer for doing well in patient and improper manner, we can rely upon these promises that when we are evil spoken of by our government or by our masters and we submit as those who obey the Lord. We put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. We magnify the truths of God's word and the God of heaven is pleased and that's a promise. And they won't get away with it. And that's a promise. 
I want to read just a few more verses in the next chapter of Peter to drive this home and then we'll be finished. 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 18. Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience, that whereas they may speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for our sins, or excuse me, for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Happy are ye, Peter says, if and when ye suffer for righteousness' sake. Not that ye, not just when, but if and when, right? If it has to happen, God forbid, but if it has to happen, don't be afraid of them. Don't be troubled by them because you have suffered for doing good. Just like Jesus, just like Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah's response is not going to be ideal. We'll see that next week. But great is your reward in heaven. Today we read for the first time a physical suffering by Jeremiah for the prophetic word which he preached. He was struck, he was imprisoned, he was mocked, he was scorned, he was shamed. So too might we be one day, God forbid. But there's no lack of teaching in the word of God regarding how we are to handle it. Bear it with patience. But even more so, bear it with joy. Happy are ye, not because you're suffering, not because they hate you. Happy are ye, because great is your reward in heaven. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.